Mercy Hill Church, I'm feeling a little bit this morning uh, like Smokey and the Bandit. I got a long way to go and a short time to get there. After reading that passage of Scripture, Jeff's the only one who got that. And uh, you guys need to catch up on iconic American movies. Um, I realize you missed an hour of sleep last night and that you're smelling barbecue or will be in just a minute. And um, it looks like about half of our folks are gone for spring breaks. That means we, you get double barbecue today. So I'm aware of the time. And um, I realize this is a long passage of Scripture. Let me give you just the warning on the front end. that I'm going to spend the majority of the, the time in this text looking at um, verses 19 through 25. So don't get worried when we hit that long warning at the end of the text. And you're thinking, oh man, we're like... I know what time it is. Going to get you to barbecue. Promise. So let's jump in to verse 19. Over the last four weeks, we've been studying Hebrews. Um, particularly in the last four weeks, we've seen in chapters 8, 9, and 10 that the writer of Hebrews has just been hammering the sacrificial system repeatedly over and over and over again. He's gone Old Testament on us. Very symbolic, talking about the blood within the temple and within the tabernacle and the sacrifice and over and over and over again he repeats that Jesus is better than the law and the old covenant and that Jesus has actually entered into not just a physical holy place like was represented in the Old Testament within the tabernacle or even in a grander way there in the temple but Jesus has actually entered before the throne of God and he has made a sacrifice once for all. Jesus, perfect spotless lamb, his blood has been sprinkled before the throne of God satisfying God's wrath against us. And over these last three chapters, he has been hammering that, reminding us that we are now part of a new covenant, that we're part of God's grace. And so we pick up in verse 19 with the word, therefore. And whenever we see that word, we always ask the question, what's it? Therefore, that's right. The writer is moving from a hugely doctrinal section to a section that's purely applicational. Now, that's not to say that doctrine is not applicational, because I believe it is. But we're going to see a lot of application in this text. And I want you to look for two words that we're going to see three times. It's the words, let us. Underline them in the text. I want you to pay attention to them. Pick up in verses 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Let's stop right there for a minute. Reminder to us that we're now under grace, no longer under the law. And we tend to struggle with that and really believing it. We, we get it from a cognitive perspective, but our hearts really struggle to believe that we are under grace. And the writer is saying that we have confidence to enter this holy place because of Jesus. So it's, it's an incredible picture that he's painting here for us. Look back at the text. The writer is saying that as Jesus' body was literally torn apart on the cross, that in that moment, his sacrifice for us opened the way so that the curtain in the temple was separated. It was torn from top to bottom. 
as if God physically opened up that which was most holy that only one priest could enter at one time of the year and now God's Spirit dwells among us in all places at all times. And what that means is that we don't have to earn our way to God. We don't have to earn our way to God. But we don't get that. You know, we struggle with that. We know all this from a mental perspective, but how often have you felt like, man, I still feel so far from God. What's the next thing you find yourself doing? Man, I feel so far from God. I got to start going to church. I got to start reading my Bible. Where is that thing? I don't even know where it is. Where, I got to start reading my Bible. What do we do? I'm far from God. We come up with this long list of stuff we need to start doing as if the activities of our life will cause us to be closer to God. And God is reminding us that He is gracious to us and that He's never left us. The writer is not saying that we draw near to God by meeting God in His temple. That's the old way. So, look with me at verse 22. Let's pick up. He says, Let us, this first one we see, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. At first, let us. So, how do we draw near to God? He says, Let us draw near to God. Well, let me say this. He's not talking about church attendance. He's going to get to that later in verse 24. But when he says, let us draw near to God, he's not just talking about Sundays. Uh, He's not saying that drawing near to God involves being in a building where God's presence resides. If you show up in most churches... Uh, in this town on Sunday morning, you will hear a theology that sounds as if God lives upstairs in the youth room and plays pool all week on the pool tables. When I moved back to Memphis, I visited denominational churches and non-denominational churches, and I heard the same terminology at every church. I was amazed. Welcome. Isn't it such... A wonderful thing to be in the house of the Lord this morning. It's terrible theology. The house of the Lord? Are we in the Old Testament? At the end of the service, the the pastor would come down and he would say, I want to invite you to come down to the altar. The altar? Have we gone back to the Old Testament? There are no altars in the house of God. So let's talk about the altar a minute. The best way to think about an altar when it comes to the new covenant is this. God doesn't want your bull. He doesn't want your sheep. He doesn't want your rams. The sacrifices are done. That's not original with me, but that's the best way for you to remember it. God doesn't want your bull. There are no altars left because Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. That means we don't have altars anymore, folks. You go, well, where do we go? You go to Jesus. And so if it's more meaningful for you because of church tradition 
to walk down an aisle and bow at the front, by all means do it. God's Spirit is here and you have freedom. But you say, if I don't go to the altar, where do I go? You go to the cross. You meet Jesus at the cross. And as you meet Him at the cross, you find freedom. You say, where do I find the cross? Where do I find Jesus? Here's the beauty of it, guys. You find Him everywhere. You can find Him laying in your bed in the morning. You don't even have to swing your legs out of the bed and touch the floor before you can find Jesus because He is near. And so He is calling us. He is saying, let us draw near. How do you do it? By trying really hard? No, God doesn't want your bull. Remember that. So, we're not part of that old system anymore. We don't come to God and meet Him in a building. And and you say, why? Why don't we meet Him in a building? And what... How do we meet him? Well, if you look at the New Testament and you look and you say, where do we meet God? What does a building have to do with it? The New Testament says that we are now the living stones. Get this. This is pretty cool. We're now the living stones that God is using to build up his church, his family, And so what that means is we actually know the color of God's church building. If your kids ever say, what color is the church? You can look at them and remind them that it is red, yellow, black, and white. Because we are His church. We're the living stones that He is using to build up the household of God, which means that we don't go to church. You guys know this. We are the church. And that gives us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that we can be in the presence of God on mission for Him. In the New Testament, we see this family. And that's what the writer is calling us to do. He's calling us to draw near. Draw near to this family. That doesn't just simply mean going to church on a Sunday. He's going to exhort us to much more than that. Look back at verse uh, 22 for a moment. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So, if drawing near to God doesn't simply mean going to church, then how do we draw near? That's the question I think if we read this. Let us draw near. How do you do that? Let me ask you a simple question. What stirs your affections for Jesus? Because my guess is that most of you had already gone somewhere in your head. When I said, how do we draw near to God? Most of you probably said, here he goes. Read your Bibles. Wake up early in the morning. Read your Bible. I want to ask a different question. What stirs your affections for Jesus? One of the things that stirs my affections for Jesus, I despise getting up early in the mornings. I despise it. I'm not a morning person. I don't think I ever will be. I try to go to bed about 9.30 or 10 at night so I can get up in the morning. I still hate it. And one of the things that stirs my affections for Jesus, uh, Andrew, our, our regular music leader, is not here today, but I will get up... And I will not go run early in the mornings unless someone is expecting me to be there. But I'm highly responsible. 
And so I know that Andrew is going to be at the end of my street with his little flashing armbands on, and I'm going to come out my door and see him, and he's going to be waiting on me at the end of the street at 530. And so I will go run with him. And as we run... Oftentimes he'll ask me, hey, have you read Mark 8 yet? We'll, we'll talk about scripture in our coffee group or things that are going on in our lives. And it stirs my affections for Jesus. A couple of Saturdays ago, I was struggling to finish a message. And Andrew, I'm running with him early in the morning. And he goes, he starts telling me about what he was reading that morning. And it just stirred my affections for Jesus. I'm like, this dude got up early on a Saturday morning. And he's studying the scriptures. And he's telling me how God is speaking to his heart. And it just got me fired up to go home and write the rest of the sermon. Because if I'm not hearing that, what I'm thinking is everybody else is just having fun on Saturday and I don't have my message done and I'm stuck and i got to go home and finish this sermon. No, he's stirring my affections up. Just, just being with a friend, talking about Jesus. No, I'm not going to ask you to wake up at 5 in the morning and go run with us. Because for many of you, you say, let me tell you what would not stir my affections up. Exactly what you just described. And so that's why I ask you, what stirs your affections up? There's freedom. What draws you closer to Jesus? No, I'm not talking about, there's not the kind of freedom like, well, what stirs my affections up is sitting at home on a Sunday morning reading the newspaper and smoking a blunt. That's not what I'm talking about. Like, not, there's not that kind of freedom, okay? So there's, there's going to be parameters here in which we see the Spirit of God at work. So there's going to be things like, we're going to meet Jesus in the Scriptures. We're going to meet Him in prayer. There might be music that's involved for you. It might be, be, might be that you're alone. It might be that we're, you're with other people. Some of you should try being outside. Jesus was oftentimes alone and outside and oftentimes by bodies of water. I think there was Jesus, he knew how to get away. And for some of you, if you want to meet with the Lord and hear from him, you need to be more attuned to what's going on in your own physical body because you're not in touch with your own emotions. And so you have no idea what the Spirit is speaking to you. And some of the best things that you could do would be to go on a walk and simply pay attention to your senses. What am I feeling? What am I smelling? What am I seeing? What does the ground feel like under my feet? Some of you need to be grounded physically in evil so that you can understand your own emotions and you'd be surprised how you'll be able to hear from God in the midst of that. Take a 20-minute walk daily and see what happens. What stirs your affections for Jesus? One of the things that stirs my affections for Jesus is when I can't go to sleep at night like last night. Anybody have trouble last night? You're an hour ahead. You're trying to go to sleep. We had worked in the yard. I was really tired. and It was like the on switch was just stuck. You know, I'm like, it's like one o'clock in the morning and I'm just like, I can't go to sleep. One of the things that stirs my affections for Jesus when I can't go to sleep, I lay in the bed and I just review what I call the dailies. This is what John Ortberg describes them as. Review the dailies. What are the things that you're thankful for from today? And I, I mean, I like get really minute, like that chocolate cake, those m and I'm so thankful I'll be honest, yesterday I bought chocolate-covered cherries. I am an old geezer, 
And I was so thankful for those chocolate-covered cherries. They were good. What am I thankful for? I'm thankful that God's given me health, that I can get outside and rake my leaves. Just all the small things that I'm thankful for. So what stirs your affections for Jesus? How does Jesus want you as a person to draw near to him? Then let me ask you this. If you're struggling with this, and if you go, I'm not sure, then what robs your affections for Jesus? And if you don't know what robs your affections for Jesus, then really you can just simply ask, then what are the things that you're affectionate about? Like, What stirs your affections for other things? So like, are are your affections stirred by TV? Like, are you the kind of person that loves to sit down and watch like three, four hours TV at a time? Because one thing I can tell you is that my affections for Jesus are not stirred by sitting down and watching four hours TV. And like I'll do it sometimes, and I'll I'll stand. And I've I can I've never stood up and go, praise the Lord. The blacklist is so good. <laughs> never done that, you know. And so, what robs your affections from Jesus? One of the ways that you can determine that is, what are the other things in your life that stir up your affections? Honestly, for a lot of guys, it's sports. You watch, you listen to tons of talk radio. You get all into, you know, whoever your team is, and it's all you talk about. Listen, our hearts are made to attach to one thing. That's why we're called to, to love one person. If your heart is attached to something more than Jesus, then that's what's still in your affections. For some of us, to draw near to God means that we need to repent of drawing near to some other lesser things. The Bible calls that idolatry. And you can look really easily at your life and just ask the question, what do I get most excited about? What stirs me up? And if it's not Jesus, then there's some things that you need to repent of. Draw near to God. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a little secret here as you think about what it means to draw near to God. If you aren't living a fruitful life as a Christian, the place to start looking is always your prayer life. Because that's what the writer is talking about here. He's talking about drawing near to God, the throne room of God, that we have a high priest, we have a mediator, we have one who intercedes between us and God. Look back at verse 22 for just a minute. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we draw near to God not because... We're doing what we're supposed to be doing, not because we've stopped doing something or because we've started doing something, but instead we draw near to God because of a sincere faith. And we can have a sincere faith because Jesus has gone before us. So we meet him not at the altar, but we meet him at the cross. And as we meet him at the cross, we come to recognize his grace that's in our lives. We have a sincere faith. 
We're reminded in our own baptisms that it's a picture of the healing and cleansing that Christ's death and resurrection has given to us. He's given us new life. He's made us clean. He's made us pure. Now look at verse 23. Second one we see. Let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. I'm just going to say one quick thing about this because I want to move on to verse 24. How do we hold fast the confession of our hope? And what is our hope? Well, the confession is that Jesus died once for all. And so we hold fast the confession of our hope very simply by not adding anything to the cross. By saying, Jesus is simply enough. Jesus paid it all. That's it. That old hymn that we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. When we really get that in our lives, when we get the fact that we are redeemed, that we are forgiven, that there's nothing we have to do, it transforms us. And like people are really scared to hear pastors who truly preach grace because if you truly preach grace, the legalists will think that everybody is going to be running around drunk, acting crazy, doing everything they want to do, staying out all night on Friday, Saturday. That's not the truth. When grace grabs a hold of your heart, you see that what Jesus has done for you, you see his unmerited favor, it changes you radically. You want to serve him. You want to please him. You want to live for him. Now look at verse 24. We see the third, let us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This word stir up, it means to incite. And so it can be, it's a strong word. It has positive and negative uses that we see in the New Testament. So here it's, it's positive. Let's stir up. But in Acts chapter 15, it was negative. It's the passage of Scripture in which Barnabas and Paul were stirred up so much that they went two different ways. Remember that? There was a discussion between them. Isn't that what your parents called it? We're not arguing, we're having a discussion. Right? And Paul and Barnabas were not arguing. They were having a discussion so much that they went two different ways. And that's what this word means, incite. And so I want you to think about that when the writer says we need to stir up one another to love and good works. I think most of us go, we're drawn to the love and good works. Yes. Yes, we need people in our lives. We need people to lock arms with us. We need people to put their arms around us. We all want to do love and good works. Kind of kumbaya. But what the writer is saying here is that we need people who are willing to challenge us. And Jesus was good at this. You know, we think that Jesus was more like Mr. Rogers. Like, you know, Jesus was always kind and had nice things to say. And he loved everyone. And he said, you should love your neighbor. No, Jesus, he was, but he would stir things up with everybody. I wrote down a few of the things that Jesus stirred up when it came to the Pharisees. And these are some words that he had for them. He had the harshest words for the religious leaders. He said, you blind guides. This is kind of funny. You blind guides. You fools. He called them fools. You serpents. 
Here's a good one. You can use this with your children later. You generation of vipers. <laughs> Anybody ever feel like that? You will tonight when they miss your, their hour of sleep. <laughs> You'll get it. He called them hypocrites. Matthew 23, 27, listen to this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus would stir things up, man. He would, he would provoke. But you say, those are all the religious leaders. Like, he wouldn't do that to his own people. Oh, have you seen Peter? You remember that little conversation that Jesus had with Peter? In which Peter had just declared, Jesus, you're the Messiah. And, and Peter kind of had like half of it right. And then when Peter doesn't want Jesus to suffer and die on the cross, what does Jesus say and challenge to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. He calls one of his best friends Satan. Man, that's stirring somebody up. That's a challenge. When's the last time you looked at somebody in your missional community and said, I think you're Satan tonight. You're going to need to go in the kitchen and pray for a minute. <laughs> I don't recommend us doing that. But what does it look like for us? Because we're not Jesus, right? So what does it look like for us to stir one another up? It probably looks like more challenge than what we're used to, right? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to talk about that in your coffee groups. If you have time in your missional community, but particularly in your coffee groups this week, I want you to have a discussion with one another, five or ten minutes. What does it look like for us to stir one another up? And for you to give permission. Okay, this is where it gets easier. This is where trust, this is how trust works. Not for someone to demand of you, but for you to give permission. You have permission to stir me up in this way. You have permission to hold me accountable when I'm not reading Scripture. You have permission to hold me accountable when I, I, I'm just not making this a priority. You have permission. So give each other permission how you can stir one another up. Stir up. Just last week I was uh, meeting with a friend that doesn't know Jesus. He's brought up by his mom. He's discipled well to be a great atheist. And um, he's kind of moved over into the category of agnostic. He's questioning. Um, so he's really open to all spirituality. And he's talking about all this. You know, he's like, what about Elith? Let's talk about Elith. And I'm like, who in the world are you talking about? He's like, you know, Elith. She was created with Adam and she was the first woman. And he goes into all this Jewish mythology with me. And I'm like, dude, would you shut up about Elith? And he's like, well, who's to say that Elith isn't as true as Eve? And I'm like, give me some manuscript evidence for Elith. And he's like, what are you talking about? And we kind of walk through and see Elith doesn't even show up in any manuscripts until like 700 AD. And she's clearly someone who came from Jewish mythology. And, and he's like, well, how do I know that I shouldn't give just as much credence to Hinduism or Buddhism? And I start him up in this way. This is what I told him. I said, Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I said, so Jesus said something that was incredibly narrow, self-righteous, and intolerant of all others. And he had complete right to do it if he was God. 
<laughs> my friend goes, I'm really glad you said that because I was thinking, that's really intolerant and self-righteous. I said, he had permission to do it if he's God. And I said, there's either one thing that's true. It's either one or the other. One of two things. Either Jesus was truly a liar and a lunatic, and he's just some crazy man. And if that's the truth, then give no credence to anything he says. And by all means, move on with your life and do whatever works for you spiritually. Or what he said was true, and that you ought to at least honor him long enough to give some credence to what he says and pursue him. And see if what he said is really true or not. So my friend I sat down with, I stirred him up. I said some really harsh things to him. We left with him going, okay, we're going to read this chapter together. We're going to study it next week. You'd be surprised what happens when you challenge people, when you stir them up. Look at verse 25. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth... I'm sorry, I jumped to verse 26. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now what's he talking about? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. How many of y'all have heard this text before? It's a famous text that's preached in churches with Sunday night services, particularly on the first Sunday of February. It's a joke. Super Bowl people. <laughs> you need to be here tonight. No, that's not really what he's talking about here. It's like, yes, Sundays is important, but we've lowered the bar so far that we just try to get people regularly to show up on Sundays. Think about the context of this group of people. Their lives were in danger. Their very lives. So yeah, they're family. They're connected. They're like, man, I got your back. You got mine. Because they were dying. Okay, they were being slaughtered for their faith. And as a result of that, they are saying, we are committed to meeting together. How often? They were together daily. I mean, they were hanging out. They had each other's backs. And here's why it's so important. You say, okay, well, we don't live in that society today. So how does this work for us? Why is it so important for us to have community? Because churches talk about community all the time. And some of you, if you're really honest, are thinking, it's really a lot more trouble than it's worth. I mean, so you show up at some Bible study at some random person's house and the kids are running everywhere being crazy and you try to get food there after work and it's just a lot of work and you're going, is anything really happening here? And there's all these odd people there that aren't like me. They're not in my stage of life. They either have a lot of kids and they got too many kids or they don't have any kids and it's just a mess. And if a lot of you are honest, you're going, it's just not worth it. Let me tell you why it's worth it. I had a mentor one time tell me, um, he said, uh, single adults are selfish. It's, what, it's who they are. I said, what? He made this statement publicly in this huge church that was mainly single adults. And I was like, Stan, we got, we got to talk about this. Like, that's offensive. He said, oh, I don't mean anything offensive by it. I just mean it by definition. Single adults don't have any accountability around them. And so intrinsically, they just think about themselves first. There's, there's nothing, I'm not saying it in any way that, I'm not saying that they don't think of others or that they're completely selfish, but their first thoughts are themselves because they have no accountability. And I just, I can prove that that's true. I discovered it when I got married. 
got in trouble so often. <laughs> Finally, my friends would say, hey, you want to hang out tonight? And I'd be like, yeah, uh, let me check with my, mom, with my wife. Let me check with my wife. Not my mom, my wife. And they would go, come on, man. Who wears the pants in your family? Can you not make a decision? And I'd say, shut up. I'm going to check with my wife. Because I would finally remember after like two years that there was somebody else in my life and I needed to check her calendar because it wasn't just me. And we need community around us because I will tell you this, Christian, if you are not committed to one another, you will find yourself in this deep, dark, depressed, sad state. I mean, you let Christians live alone long enough and they'll just get to this place. I don't care what your personality is. You'll just get to this place where you're like, buying ammunition. I'm getting some water. I'm getting the supplies together. We're going underground. You will. Like, you just get this depressed melancholy like you'll see some people who are doing the Christian life alone on social media sometimes and they'll just be like man it's just all like Jesus is coming tomorrow I know it you're like how do you know that it's just all falling apart and it kind of is all falling apart but Jesus is coming we need community we need one another because our, listen, here's what happens to us. Intrinsically, it doesn't matter if you're, I hope none of you single adults were offended by that. Because we're all selfish. It's all natural that we just are attracted to people who are like us. I talked to one friend who's a church planting over in um, Nutbush area, Berkeley. You guys know where that is? Yeah. Jerry Snow Cones, if you don't know, okay. Um, and if you don't know where that is, you need to watch Smokey and the Bandit this afternoon and go get Jerry Snow Cones, okay? <laughs> but, um, so I'm talking to my friend Doug, and he's at this Hispanic church plant, and he's got people from all over Latin America and all over Mexico, and he goes, dude, the homogeneous unit, is it work even in the Spanish-speaking church? I said, How? Like what? He's like, dude, the Colombians don't want to hang out with the Mexicans because they're like, we're tired of eating your burritos and we're too good for that. So like the Colombians are all hanging out over here and the Mexicans are like, forget y'all. Like we are drawn to be around people who are in our stage of life, who are like us. And I'm telling you, we need community because we are selfish when we get in those kinds of groups. And listen, it doesn't feel good to be in a group when you don't have any kids and there's all these kids around you. And I've even had people come and complain about that and just be like, it's loud. And I look at them and go, how do you think the parents feel? They're with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> or vice versa. It's like, I don't want to be with all these married people. They're no fun. They don't ever do anything. They don't go out after dark. <laughs> and one day you're going to discover that you don't go out after dark either because you got married. And you're going to go, oh my goodness, I'm one of them now. We need one another. Not because it's 
easy, but because God uses it to get us outside of our selfish ways. Jesus said, I came to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. The greatest way that you can serve is to get in a community of people who are not like you. And I guarantee you there will be endless opportunities for you to serve. I never said it would be easy. But just on a, as a footnote, I just need to say this. As a footnote, go back and read Mark 8. Because I just read this last week. Go back and read Mark 8. Jesus is talking. I mean, he's got thousands who have followed him. And it says, after three days, he looked at the disciples and said, we have to send them away to get something to eat. They're going to pass out. To follow Jesus back in the day, are you ready to fast for three days? Oh, following Jesus is easy. Maybe it's not quite as easy as we thought it was. We need to be stirred up toward love and good deeds. We need one another. We need community. And let me just say this. Verse 24 doesn't speak primarily just to showing up to a gathering like this Sunday morning. But it does at least speak to that. And I think it speaks to being in community with one another and doing life together. And let me just say this. How is it that I'm a runner? Okay, so if I go a month and I don't run... I can't just go on a Saturday morning and meet up with a crew of people and go run downtown and come back to my house about 12 miles. I can't just go and do that and not be out of breath, really sore, and just kind of feeling like a loser. Why can't I do that? I'm a runner. I've been running for like 20 years, running a lot of marathons. Why can't I just go and run 12 miles? Because if I took a month off, I can guarantee you I will feel flabby, out of breath, and out of shape. If that is true for my physical life, why would we think anything would be different in our spiritual lives? So when we just go, well, I opened up my journal. It's been like three months since I wrote anything in there. Hmm. I wonder if that's a clue as to why we maybe feel a little disconnected, a little far from God. It's just an encouragement to you. What you need physically, you need as well spiritually. We need community. We need one another. Last, let me just finish with this as we uh, get ready to wrap up. I want to read to you um, verses 26 through 39 just just to finish. And uh, as I read them to you, I want you to feel the full weight of this. I'm going to read them slow. Um, And I want you to feel the full weight of it because these individuals were people who were suffering and their lives were in danger. Like like, like the writer is in in this text, the summary is, don't shrink back. Okay, so they were shrinking back because their very lives were at stake. And as I read this slowly, I was just thinking about that for us when it comes to shrinking back, one of the trends that I see, one of the cultural norms in the church in America today, it goes like this. I got my kids across the finish line. They're baptized. They're married. They're out of the house. Now I can just relax. I've done my part. Mission trips, pool parties, late night counseling with all the youth. 
We even went downtown and fed the homeless for a while. I did my tour. The church isn't relevant for me anymore. I'm going to sit down at home on Sunday morning and relax and retire from the church. That has become the cultural norm. And I realize that for most of us, we're young and we're not there yet. But what does that reveal about what we believe, about what the church and the gospel both do and what they're for? I think it reveals a lot. And the writer of Hebrews is warning against that kind of a heart. So listen to these words carefully. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fear, fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I don't believe a, a follower of Jesus can fall from grace, but in verse 26, what's he talking about when he says, Receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I think when he says receiving the knowledge of the truth, he is speaking to believers who are part of the community. They're part of the family of faith in the sense that they're there, they're participating, and they're hearing a knowledge of the truth. But they've never followed Jesus with their lives. He goes on, he says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does he mean by that? I think he simply means that if you're part of a community and a family of faith and you're hearing the truth, but you're not following Jesus, then you got nothing. If you don't have the sacrifice of Jesus, then you got nothing. When it comes to figuring out, hey, how are my sins are forgiven? How am I right with God? How do I find eternal life? Where peace and joy in this world? You got nothing if you don't have Jesus. And he goes on and he finishes in 32 through 39. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Draw near to God. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, as the band uh, comes forward and, and takes to the Lord's Supper, um, and they're going to prepare to lead us. Think of James chapter 4. As soon as I started reading this text, 
It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Why does he draw near to us when we draw near to him? I believe it's because he's never left us. I believe that as we draw near to him, we recognize his presence. That God is near to the brokenhearted. And so if if you're brokenhearted today, if there's things in your life that are not as they should be, that are not as you wish they were, that God's timing seems wrong, that you're struggling with things from your past, grief, life's just not turning out as you thought it should, maybe death of a loved one, sickness, draw near to God. He's near to you. And as you draw near to Him, draw near to His community. Because His community wants to stir you up to love and good deeds. And I'm praying that as our church continues to draw near to God, I'm praying that one of the ways that He will stir us up more than any other is that we will come to know the love of the Father in such a deep and abiding way that his name will regularly be on our lips. So much so that our lost friends and neighbors who are around us, who are dying apart from him, will come to hear the love of the Father because they hear it through us. God is at work. He's at work in Midtown. I talked to a friend yesterday. There are two couples that he was with. They've committed to spend four to six hours a week. They work nine to five jobs. They've, cons- they've committed to spend four to six hours a week on the weekends primarily prayer walking in Midtown and sharing the gospel. And they want to meet up. We're meeting up on Tuesday night. They want to do dinner. They want to hear about Midtown. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You say, how is the harvest plentiful in Midtown? People don't love Jesus. The hardest ground here. The, the ground is really hard here. That means the harvest is plentiful. There's a bunch of people who need to be harvested for the gospel. My prayer is that God stirs our hearts up for Jesus. That we would be people who are not just about Jesus on Sunday mornings and Jesus in our missional communities and Jesus in our coffee groups. That we would be a people who are about Jesus in all of life. Draw near to God. And he'll draw near to you. I want to invite the band to come and take communion. If you would pray with me. Father, thank you that you have loved us enough that when we couldn't draw near to you, that God, you drew near to us. God, your, your grace in our lives is amazing. God, I just want to pray for those who are here this morning and all their life that draw near to you is meant doing something. Doing more. Doing less. God, I want to pray this morning as we are reminded of your body broken for us and your blood poured out for us. God, I want to pray that we would be reminded that your sacrifice is enough. That God, we can draw near to you simply because of Jesus' work on the cross. And God, you are powerful enough to resurrect him and that same work that you did in him, you desire to do in us as we draw near to you. And so Father, I just want to pray for those who who need prayer today. Um, who need to sense your presence. Father, I pray for those who are, are sick and need to experience healing. God, I pray that your presence would be near them. 
I pray for those who are apathetic and who have had times of that were refreshing in the past and times in which they were passionate for you and times in which their lives were filled with joy and peace, but God, they just feel stale and they feel far from you. God, I want to pray that they would just recall and experience and enjoy the joy of the salvation that they experienced when they first came to know you. And Father, I pray for those who are far from you, who feel that their sin is so great that they couldn't be saved. God, I pray that you'd remind them that they shouldn't have a higher standard for themselves than you have for them, that your grace is enough, that Jesus is all that's needed. Pray that they would come to know you even today. Father, thank you that because of Jesus, we can draw near to you. God, thank you for your table that reminds us of your powerful work in us. Not just something that happened in the past, but your work that continues today. God, we are saved. We're being saved. We will be saved. God, thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, amen.